0: Several years ago, a friend of mine and his wife adopted two boys from another country. And as they were going through the process of the adoption, they kept getting pictures and videos from the orphanage there about their sons that were coming. And one of the most memorable pictures and videos we have was of the two boys playing in their orphanage with a little spigot and a Garden hose about that long, with the water coming out of it, and they were just kind of showering each other with it and washing each other and playing, and it was you know a, a cute and uh scene. And uh, we saw these videos and pictures the whole time that, that they were in the process of getting their sons, and then they brought them home. And a few years after they had been home, we were uh, up in northern Ohio, and we were uh, together with their family. And they brought their boys, and we all had access to this place called Kalahari. Kalahari is a, a massive resort in, in, in all over the United States, really, the world. And it's 186,000 square feet of an indoor water park. And I'll never forget these two adopted boys walking in and seeing 186,000 square feet of running water at their, disposable to, at their disposal to play in. And when I walked in, I remember thinking of this quote by C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and money and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far Too easily pleased. It's exactly what those little boys experienced. They didn't want to keep playing with their little garden hose. They had kalahari. And I think when we read a passage like this, and we hear God say that you're a son, you're no longer a slave, it's hard for us to believe, isn't it? We're kind of content playing with our little garden hose of a life when what's offered to us is the rights of sonship. And that's what we're going to look at. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to unpack the passage in a simple way of teaching it. And then I'm going to give us some uh, two points, the power of our sonship and the privileges of our sonship. But let's make sure we understand what Paul is saying. Verse one and verse two, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Paul is drawing from a very cultural uh, example. Actually, we, would, we, would, we know these kind of examples too. A very wealthy man has an inheritance. He has some, a son. He wants to give that inheritance to his son, but the son is young, so he's not gonna give his inheritance to an eight-year-old. So in order to protect the inheritance and to protect his son, he puts stipulations, uh, guardians is what Paul calls it, managers to watch the inheritance until the time is set for the son to inherit The gift, I had a very good friend whose grandfather uh, had a a world-class patent on something, and he made gazillions of dollars, and he knew over the span of hundreds of years, that money would make money upon its money, upon its money, upon its money, and his children and grandchildren would have access to this. And a very wise thing that he did in his estate was he set age limits for children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren so they could access that inheritance at a time that was appropriate for them. So at age 14, they had access here. At age 21, they had access here. At age 30, they had access here. You get the picture. That's what Paul is saying here. That's the the example he's using. So then he goes on in verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul's making the connection here. In the same way, you and I, when we were little, lived underneath the, the guiding principles, the teachers of this world. He calls them the elementary principles of this world. We going to talk about what that is. And we were, un, we were enslaved to them until, verse 4, the fullness of time had come then god sent forth his son born of woman this son was fully man fully god born under the law to redeem those under the law so he was going to bring them out from underneath this elementary principle enslavement so that he would make them into sons under the fatherhood of god and I'm going to keep doing this illustration because I think it fits the point here is that Christ came to redeem us out from under something and to bring us under something better. We understand this. The promise was given, as Paul said in Galatians 3, to Abraham, 430 years later, the law comes. The purpose of the law was not to save or redeem anybody. The purpose of the law, the purpose of the elementary principles of the world was to lead us to Christ, to point us to the greater salvation, which is Jesus. And then verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He has just said to them, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You started with Christ, and then you decided it would be a good idea to come out from under Christ and do it on your own with circumcision, or religious laws, or whatever else. And he said, when you did that, you subjected yourself back to slavery. You became vulnerable to a whole bunch of dangerous things, and he's saying, stay in Christ. And when you're in Christ, Christ's spirit lives in you, and that spirit cries out, Abba, Father, which literally means, Daddy, Daddy. This is an amazing passage. This passage teaches the great doctrine of adoption. You now call God the creator, God the sustainer of life, the almighty Yahweh, Daddy. To say it simply, when a person is in Christ, everything that the Father intends to give to the Son is yours. Let me say that again. This teaches, if you are in Christ, everything the father has in store for his son, he will give to those in Christ. So the question of questions is, are you in Christ? And is Christ in you? If so, you're no longer a slave. You're a son. Now, an important caveat. This is a gender-specific word, son. Why? Why? Because the passage is not primarily about you and me. That's why he doesn't say sons and daughters. The primary purpose of this passage is to say there is a son who is going to get all the inheritance and blessing. And his name is Jesus, the man from Nazareth. And any man or woman or slave or free or brown or black or white or rich or poor that is in Christ gets the same rights. That is a powerful, powerful inclusion. You and I are in Christ. So, what I'm gonna plead with you this morning, what Paul is gonna plead is, friend, please remain in Christ. Don't come out from under him. Don't come out from under Christ. He is the son of God. Now, let's look at the power of that sonship and then let's look at the privileges of that sonship. All right, first the power. Paul mentions here that the inheritance that was promised was under the guardianship or the teacherhood management of elementary principles. Okay, what in the world does that mean? He says in verse 3, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What does that mean? Now, when I study a passage of Scripture, many of us, when we study, I, I access three type of commentaries. The first kind of commentary I access is what is a a real rigid academic commentary, okay? And it's loaded with Greek and Hebrew connections and contextual clues and literary things, stuff that's way beyond a Berry College graduate's head, okay? But I read them because it it dives deep into the text, and we need that. The second is a semi-academic, okay? It's got some of that really good grammatical, uh, linguistic work, but it's a little more readable for college basketball players like me, right? You can just understand what is going on there. The third kind is what they call a preacher's commentary, where it's a, a, a pastor took that passage and made it applicable to the church. And those are the commentaries that you read where you, you, you know, read Charles Spurgeon, uh, you read Kent Hughes, some of these guys who take the passage and make it applicable. Those are the kind. Well, this, in an act of God's humor, The one that I benefited most from during this week was the academic one because of this passage, this word. I was curious, what did he mean by elemental principles? And this is what the the academic commentary said. The Greek term here is capable of taking on a wide variety of specific meanings. This commentator lists six ways it was used outside the New Testament. Here's what they do. There was a lot of other writings happening in 44 AD that were in Greek. So the New Testament's written in Greek. There's a whole bunch of other writings in Greek. They go and research all these other writings to find out how was this Greek phrase used there? Well, there's six ways that were phrased. Let me tell them to you. Number one, this phrase could be said to describe the degrees on a sundial. They didn't have watches back then, right? They told time by the sundial. So this elementary principle, Greek word, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, you could tell time by it, something real simple, like tell time. Second, it could also mean the letters or syllables or words in a sentence, just sentence structure, just simple grammar. Third thing it could be, it could be the basic elements of the world, earth, wind, air, fire. You know, the ancients talked about that, that we're just kind of the summation of the basic elements of the universe, earth, wind, fire, water, that kind of thing. Or fourth, it could be the fundamental subjects in a culture, music, mathematics, uh, money, child care, just the kind of the basic things that make a culture run. Sixth, it could be the stars or the heavenly bodies, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the constellations and the, the galaxies and those kind of things. The sixth thing that it could be is the stellar spirits or little g gods, demons, or angels. A man of New Testament days, says a commentator, would take this Greek phrase to refer to the basic materials of which everything in the cosmos, including man, is composed. Here's what he's saying. The inheritance was delayed and you and I were guarded through the law, yes, but the basic principles of our world, which over time enslaved us. And Jesus came to liberate us out of those basic elements and show us something greater. So my mind started going crazy here as I thought about this. What in the, how how did Jesus do this? What did he do when he was on the earth to liberate us? And, and let me just tell you how it went wild, okay? So here we go. Just, just track with me on the life of Jesus. Jesus started his public ministry, came out publicly at age 30. And the first thing he did is he went to his baptism. And the scriptures say, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that when he went into baptism, he came out out of the waters, and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and the audible voice of God said, this is my son whom I love. That sounds like Galatians 4 through and through. The Spirit descending, the Father saying, that's my son. So he gets up out of the waters, and this is what Mark says. Oh, well, actually... He gets out of the waters. I'll come back to the Mark in a second. And the first thing that that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that he does is it says the Spirit led him to go be tempted by the devil. I used to have the thought that Jesus was just kind of wandering around Palestine and whammo, the devil came and tempted him. That's not what happened. Jesus came out of the waters where his father had said, this is my son whom I love. And the very first elementary principle he went after was the devil. He went to do business with the devil. He came to say, devil, your reign is over. The son of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's over for you, pal. And he went through the 40 days of temptation where he was tempted with bread. He was tempted with power. He was tempted with prestige. And he overcame the devil fully. What Adam failed to do, Jesus did fully. And the first elementary principle he dealt with was the devil. Mark says this. Jesus was proclaiming the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus himself said, the time for the inheritance to be unleashed is now. The kingdom is at hand. Why? The son of God is at hand. The second thing he did, the second elementary principle he went after was the authorities of the day. There were two authorities that were prominent in the scriptures, the religious authorities and the political authorities. He had some really aggressive, strong things to say to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of that day. These are the guys who took the elementary principles of the law and made them a heavy yoke and burden on the people. They called it self-righteousness. You don't need God's righteousness. We're going to put you under this righteousness of the law so that you're oppressed and weighted down by all these laws. So Jesus would say to these guys, you make those kind of converts twice the sons of hell that you are. He would say, better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck than for you to weigh down these little ones with these burdens. He would say, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You look really good on the outside, but inside, you're full of dead men's bones. These were strong words, but what he was doing was he was confronting the elemental principles of the law to say, listen, they were never meant to liberate you. In fact, all they do is enslave you, come out from that. And then he confronted the governmental authorities. You remember the story with Pilate? Pilate's a big, bad Roman governor. He's got all the authority of Caesar behind him. He could at the moment have anybody killed anyone. He has, and he, had this, he has this little rabbi from Nazareth in front of him. And he says, listen, you know I could, have a, I could have you killed tonight. And Jesus said, Pilate, you've got it backwards. At my word, I could have a legion of angels. And we would undo Rome, Greece, mesopotamia egypt america russia you named up superpower i will have a legion of angels and it will be over for you he just head on the religious authorities and the political authorities come out from under those those are enslaving you and then what about all the miracles that jesus did think about the physical oppression he released the leper the blind those that were lame in their legs. He healed them. In fact, one woman had a bleeding issue and she says, Jesus, I've gone to every doctor I know. I've spent my life savings and no one can heal me. And with the touch of his robe, he healed her. Without even going to the city, hearing about Jairus' daughter dying, he he raises her from the dead from another city. Who in the world has that kind of power? The son of God, who's not subject to the elementary principles of the world, but who can liberate all physical suffering, including death. Think about Lazarus. What's the purpose of the story of Lazarus? Jesus said to Martha, your your brother has died, but he will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And she said, yeah, I believe you're the son of God. What happened to Lazarus after he was raised from the dead? Well, 20 years later, he died again. Even Lazarus had to go back to the grave. The point of Jesus' liberating body is to say, no matter how great our medicine is, no matter how great your healthy habits are, no one ever has escaped the oppression of the earthly principle, elementary principle of death. The only one who has done that is the risen Son of God. So the government, the devil, our physical bodies, Listen to this promise given by the prophet Isaiah. We owe this. We say it every Christmas, Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore. That's the son. And Jesus would say, if the son sets you free, you're free indeed. There's one other elementary principle that Jesus came to liberate us from, and that is our sin. On the cross, you know, well, before the cross, Jesus would tell the paralytic, hey, pal, pick up your mat and walk. Oh, and by the way, your sins are forgiven. And the religious folks went crazy. Whoa, hang on. You know, a charlatan miracle worker can tell somebody to walk. Only God can forgive sins. And here is the Son of God doing both. And then he goes to the cross. And Paul, Paul told us in Galatians 3, we saw last week, everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. Jesus went to the tree as a curse. And on that cursed tree, he cries out, it is finished. He even prays for the people around, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Next to him were two thieves. One thief is like, man, if you were really the son of God, you could get off that tree, you could save us, you could save yourself, you could defeat this whole Roman thing, this whole thing could be ended if you just get off the tree. The other guy, hey Jesus... When you enter your kingdom, would you remember me? And what does Jesus say to that guy? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, thief, you'll quit drinking from the little garden hose, and you will have Kalahari. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why? The son, the heir of all things, has come. There's power that he has, and he overcame those elementary principles. That's our power. Secondly, the privileges of our sonship. From our passage here in Galatians, these privileges are rooted in the cry of the heart. Look at what he says. God has put his spirit in you, the spirit of his son, so that we now cry, Abba, Father. The word cry here literally is a loud, vehement scream. A cry. Don't you feel that? Don't you feel it when you look at the world? You just want to cry, oh, Lord, how long? When will you liberate us from these elementary principles? Oh, God, Abba, Father, Daddy, come rescue us from this, these ailments, whether they be the devil, the government, religion, my body, death, liberate me. That's the cry of our heart. And there are some privileges that go with that. The first one is Prayer. This is is not trite, friend. Mac led us through earlier in our worship, the Lord's Prayer. We all said it by memory, most of you. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he goes through all the elementary principles. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Deliver us from evil. Why? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So Jesus is telling us to pray was not just some kind of trinket thing we do as religious people. It is the Abba cry of the heart. You have access to the Father of heaven. Jesus is at the throne, the right hand of the throne of majesty, and he is interceding for you. Friend, Paul would say, pray without ceasing. Pray when you rise. Pray when you go to bed. Pray when you're happy. Pray when you're sad. Pray when you're afraid. Pray when you have big decisions. Pray when you have small decisions. Pray when you don't feel like praying. Pray, pray. Why? Because your Father is listening to you. Mac and I were talking in between services. It's not about you asking God for things. It's about communing with your Father one of the greatest privileges we have because he has put his spirit in us is the privilege to pray. I hope however many more years the Lord gives me, I become more and more of a praying man. I hope that's true for our church. I hope that's true for our people. Pray. The second privilege that I've thought about is the privilege to suffer and to die well. Here's why I say this. I've thought about this a lot this year. In the span of 16 months, I've had five deaths that I've been closely tied to. And I mean close. Right now, my heart is heavy for members of our congregation who to this day, right now, are in their last days, moments. How are you and I able to suffer and die well or at peace? Because we're sons and daughters. This is not our home. The Father has given us an inheritance that will never fade. Jesus has come to show us a power of the inheritance by dealing with all of his and our enemies. And the Spirit lives inside of you as a guarantee that you will not be forsaken by the Father, even in death. But every third week in this worship service, we we use this catechism question. Friend, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And we repeat back that I am not my own. But belong, body, soul, and life, and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Friend, because you are a son, because you have no need to be afraid of any form of suffering in this life, not bodily suffering, not relational suffering, not financial suffering, not even death, nothing can separate you from the love of God and Christ. The last privilege The privilege to pray, the privilege to suffer and die well. The last one is the privilege of an inheritance. Verse seven. So you are no longer a son, a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you're an heir through God. I said this beginning, whatever the father intends to give to the son is yours. This inheritance is mind blowing. This became very real to me this year. Many of you know that my father died on April 1st of this year. I have been estranged from my father for over 35 years. After he died, we heard that he had a will. My father was underwater in every respect, financially, so we know he didn't have any money or valuable possessions. But because me and my sister are heirs, we had the rights to his inheritance, whatever it was. But because we were estranged, the lawyers sent us papers so me and my sister had to sign over our rights to this other person so that she could manage his possessions and all, which honestly I was grateful for. But we got the, got the papers from the lawyers. And we opened the will, and the very first sentence of the will, this is what said. I, William Warren Witherington Jr., who's my father, have two children William Warren Witherington III and Pamela Helen Witherington Fox. I make no provisions for my children or their descendants in this will. Think about that. I'm a son, I'm an heir. And he made a decided statement in a legal document to say, I make no provisions for them or their descendants. Stung. I'm a son. One of the privileges you get for being a son is an inheritance, no matter how big or how small. But my earthly father chose to make no provisions for me. But man, I started thinking about this. My father was under a great many delusions. Perhaps his greatest delusion was that he thought he had the power to give or withhold an inheritance of significance from me. He doesn't see, I'm a son of God. I'm a son of God and I'm a co-heir with Jesus Christ and the inheritance that he has for me pales in comparison to the loss or the greatness that I would have inherited from him. So for you, if you're like me, the only thing you inherit from your father is sorrow and pain and confusion, take heart. Your father does not have the power to take your eternal inheritance. On the flip side... If your father, grandfather, has given you millions and abundance of things on this earth, don't be fooled. That inheritance is a garden hose compared to Kalahari that is coming to you. On the night before Jesus died, we're going to celebrate the supper. He was the son of God, right? He went to the cross and he had a meal with his disciples, and he gave him the bread and gave him the wine. We're going we're to do this in a second. But he said this. All three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, say this. That Jesus said to them, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The inheritance has been unleashed, friend. The Son of God has laid a table out to remind you every day you struggle to believe this. Come back to this table. We're gonna do this again in the fullness of time in the inheritance of my Father in heaven. And until that day, we rest in this assurance. I am no longer a slave, but I am a son. And with that, I cry out, Abba, Father. Friend, abide in Christ. He is your protection, always. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would never forget these truths. And on those days when we do, bring us back ever so gently and kindly as a good father and remind us that you have placed us in Christ. Now, Lord, as we take this sacrament, I pray that it would taste especially sweet to us this morning, that we are no longer slaves, but are sons, And if you are a son, then you are an heir, an heir of God, co-heir with Christ. Help us now renew our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.